Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. Uh, Before I forget, I'm going to be gone the next two weeks uh, for General Assembly and then vacation. So, all right. Well, with that said, uh, let's pray and then let's jump into 1 Samuel 13. Uh, And there is coffee if anybody's cold or sleepy or just wants to get up and walk a bit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the rain. Uh, We pray that it would reach uh, the places that need it and that it would avoid the places that don't need more water right now. Uh, We pray you keep us safe on the road this evening as we drive back home after Bible study. We thank you for bringing us here. And we pray that you would be with us as we uh, explore the text together. Would you open our eyes to see things that are there, to see in the text your ways with your people, your faithfulness toward a people who struggles to be faithful to you, your provision for them despite their leader. And we pray that as we study, that you would fill us with a godly curiosity that desires to know the text intimately and that you would protect us from stray and unhelpful remarks or lines of inquiry. We pray that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly in your word. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen. All right, verse one, right off the bat, especially with the multiple translations we have around the room, is going to raise questions. But behold those who obey. Uh, I'm reading from the ESV. You can put a big question mark over the ESV. We'll talk about it. Uh, But let's... Read through the chapter, and then we'll circle back around. Chapter 13, verse 1. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines, that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, excuse me, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. 
As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Philistines went down, sorry, but every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Dun, dun, dun. Bad news. All right. What do you notice in the text? What questions do you have? The numbers are very different. Okay, the numbers. So looking just at the first verse, right? The ESV has Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, such and such, what else do we have around the room? Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Okay, so one and 30, I'm sorry, one and two, or 30 and 42. What else do we have? Saul was 40 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 32 years over Israel. All right, so 40 and then 32. Any, anything else? Are we only focused on verse 1? Yes, sir. Just looking at verse 1 at the moment. We'll have, definitely have other questions in a moment. So the Syriac, a very, very old Aramaic translation of this, has 21 for the age when he began to reign and omits how long he reigned altogether, probably combining the, the one and the two to get 21. So what's going on in the Hebrew text is possibly it intends to say he reigned, he was king for a year and then he reigned for two years, or maybe there's an ellipsis here. Saul was something and one years old, and he reigned for 
something and two years. Um, it's really odd. So several, several ways of getting at that. Um, the Septuagint, the old Greek translation that I've mentioned a few times, doesn't really help us here because generally it just leaves verse 1 out altogether. And it goes from the end of the previous chapter straight to verse 2, um, which I think indicates that more likely we have this difficult thing going on with verse 1 that we need to try and resolve. What's, what's going on? Maybe it's he was a certain age, and then he reigned over Israel for two years. Um, this is the standard phrase that's used um, when they're talking about the kings, how old they were when they began to reign, and how long they reigned. So some of our translations have tried different ways to get around that that are not recognizing that this is just the normal way this is phrased. And there's something really anomalous about how Saul is described here. Some of these numbers are coming from looking at David. So in the record of David's reign, I mentioned he was, uh, this is at 2 Samuel 5 and verse 4, that he was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned over Israel for 40 years. And so they may be trying to take and plug numbers from a parallel passage describing David. You also have in Acts a mention of Saul reigning for 40 years in Acts 13, verse 21. And so some of our English translations are pulling data from Acts to plug in here. It's still a puzzle. It's a puzzle that we're not sure what to do with. I think that the, probably a combination of two possibilities is most likely. And that somewhere along the line, whether it's the author of Samuel or a scribe very soon after, is kind of thumbing his nose at Saul. He doesn't like him. And so he's just scrubbed out the number of years that he reigned. Because we don't care. We're in a hurry to get to David. What we need to know about Saul is he was a terrible king, right? This is also maybe a way of saying he, hadn't, he didn't rule for very long. And then this two years is either the first part of the number has also been scrubbed out, or it's indicating that in God's eyes, he reigned legitimately as a king for a period of two years. So we read the rest of Samuel, we get the idea that his reign in its entirety from a human perspective, is much longer than that. But here in chapter 13, his dynasty is rejected, as we'll see. And in chapter 15, his person is rejected. So that may be another way of looking at that, is that this takes place between the, the kind of reestablishment or renewing of the kingdom in the previous chapter to the time that he's fully and finally rejected. He actually only legitimately reigns for a total of two years. Well, does the um, age of his son, Jonathan, does that play a, uh, a part in his age? I mean, we're talking about he went and, and led a group, you know, to the garrison. So he could be 12, I would think. Good. Yes. So he has a son. We don't know. We do because it, this is not our first time reading this chapter. But if we were reading this for the first time, we don't know until verse 16 that Jonathan is his son. But at that point, we do. And Jonathan is of an age where he, can be, he could be entrusted with 
the command of a military unit called a thousand, called a thousand, right? Whether that's, you know, actually 900 or, you know, like a Roman century is often just 70, right? Whatever the actual size of a thousand is a very large group of men that he's entrusted with the leadership of. So probably Jonathan's not 12, right? Which means Saul's probably not 18. Um, and by the time Saul dies, he has a grandson already by the time he dies. Um, although Saul in, in chapter 9, just not very long ago, seemed to be a pretty young guy. And maybe even also in chapter 10. So he does seem to be older. There's one English translation I looked at, the New English Bible, that actually said his age was 50 and that he reigned for 22 years. That's, that's a guessing. Right? Most of these are guessing because the text doesn't say. Right? And so we have several layers of guessing, some of which seem more probable than others because the text doesn't actually tell us. So, um, One commentary I read suggests what you alluded to, that there was a supernatural period of reigning and a natural season of reigning. And that after he did the foolishness we see later in the chapter, that in fact, in the supernatural, his reign was over. Yes. I really like that um, as a way of trying to resolve what's going on with the two years. The problem is, the, the reason I can't fully go that direction is because the phrasing that's used here is the same phrasing that's used for kings like Ahab right? Um, so that it doesn't seem to signal a difference between legitimate, authorized by the Lord reigning versus happens to hold political office. So I think more likely the numbers have been scrubbed. Whether, and there's, there's multiple ways that could have ha happened. It could be that the person who's sitting down to write Samuel doesn't know, and so he leaves a blank. And we have examples of that in other ancient Near Eastern king lists where they'll actually leave a blank in the record so that they could put the numbers in later. And sometimes they don't ever actually come back and put those numbers in. I'm so that we're taking 15 yeah. minutes to talk about one verse. And got so many scenarios. I would have never yeah. gotten all this. Yeah. Last week without you, we went for a whole chapter. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> We missed you, Kenny. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. So, suffice it to say, right, however this came into the text, there's a question mark that nobody felt necessary to resolve. Well, I, I take that back. Like, scribes along the way have tried to resolve it. Um, but it's as though the Holy Spirit, in inspiring the recording of this verse said, you know what? How long Saul reigned and how old he was when he ascended to the throne doesn't matter. What you need to know is what unfolds over the course of this chapter and the next. Because we're about to see exactly why Saul may be the king we wanted, but is not the king we need. So I'll leave you with enough question marks about verse 1.
This is, this is one of those places where it's really fun to read the footnotes in your Bible and try and figure out what's going on and especially line up two or three translations alongside each other and compare their footnotes with one another. So Saul lived and reigned over Israel. Verse 2. So Saul chose 3,000 men, 2,000 were with him in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin, and he, excuse me, he sent everybody else home. And then what do we have in verse 3? Conflict. Okay. Unfold that a little more. He smote the garrison. Who smote? Jonathan. And a garrison of whom? Philistines. Okay. What have we been expecting since chapter 10 that we haven't seen yet? Well, there was a reference to Garrison where Samuel first or, or met Saul to announce the anointing. The Lord told Samuel before he met Saul um, that he was going to show him one who would deliver his people from the Philistines. So we've been expecting from chapter 9, from chapter 10, a showdown between Saul and the Philistines associated with the location of Gilgal and also this whole period of waiting for Samuel seven days. And none of that's happened yet. So we finally get something with the Philistines, but who does it? Jonathan. Jonathan. Now, keep in mind, we don't, if we're reading this for the first time, we don't know yet who Jonathan is. But we're expecting Saul to do something, and some dude, I mean, not just any dude, right? A guy in charge of, of a, a thousand strong military unit. He goes, not Saul, he goes and strikes the Philistine garrison. Now, and the Philistines heard it, right? Uh, and so Saul blows a trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And what do they hear in verse 4? Saul defeated the Philistines. Ooh. What is it they hear in verse 4? That Saul defeated the Philistines. So the narrator tells us that Jonathan struck or smote or attacked, or the ESV has defeated the Philistines. Um, but what the people of Israel hear is that Saul defeated, different verb, defeated the Philistines. Always pay attention to things like this. It's always, always important. The narrator will tell you what happened. And then the narrator will let characters talk about things. And that's very often where you catch someone in a lie or where, where someone begins to reveal their character is if their reporting of events does not square with what the narrator says or if their interpretation of events uh, differs from what the narrator said. It's not quite so blatant here. But the narrator tells you who struck the Philistines. And Saul goes and blows the trumpet. And what everybody hears in the report that follows that is that Saul defeated the Philistines. And does Saul bother to correct anybody on that point? No. He's happy to let people think that. Yes, sir. Kim, is there any significance to the fact that this is the possibly the first standing army 
that the country had? Yes. Yes. This is one of the differences between the judge and the king. Um, is that with the advent of a monarchy, you also have the beginning of a standing army, right? You may have had people who gather around a judge in the book of Judges, but you don't seem to have the institution of a perpetual military in the period of the Judges. Um, now, its condition here, as we'll see as we keep reading, is a little questionable, right? Is this the actual beginnings, is this, is this a de facto standing army? Is this an actual standing army? Or is this a group of Israelites who've been mustered to meet a specific threat that later become a standing army? If that makes sense, right? And we'll, we'll see some details in the text that raise questions about that. Uh. But what the people said when they said they wanted a king, they wanted someone who was going to fight their battles, which means, obviously, you have to have an army. Well, you don't need an army to fight your battles if the Lord is your king, as he keeps making clear to them. Yeah. doing it in that light, in, in my mind, yes. anyway, that, uh, that they were, they're saying that, you know, we don't need God to fight our battles. We want a man to fight our battles. Yes. So that becomes, this is difficult for us to consider in all of its, all of its implications because we live in a time in history where a standing army is just a regular thing, right? I mean, our standing army was in pretty sorry condition at the beginning of World War II, but we had a standing army. Right, that we could then bolster and train and add to. And since World War II, I don't know that we've ever, maybe in the 80s, we've never really had a significant dip in our military capabilities in terms of having a standing army that we could deploy. Whereas the much more common model in the ancient world is that landowning men had to serve when called upon, and they had to furnish their own weapons and all of that. Um, and you'd certainly had mercenary forces as well, but there typically was not a standing army as such in the way that we are familiar with. Israel does seem to develop that over time, but that raises the question of whether these these comments that Israel makes in the beginning as they're asking for a king, do they envision a standing army that they have a military leader serving at the head of so that their idea of a king is essentially a glorified warlord? Or do they envision a situation where they have someone holding the political office of a king who then stands at the head of an army mustered from the people when the need arises. Over time, I think it clearly develops into something more like what we have as a standing army. But I'm not sure that that's necessarily what they envision early in their request. So? What happened to all those 300,000 people from chapter 11? Those 300,000 people? 
and they, you know, we're talking a lot of people here. If are they just they've been sent what they've been sent back home, and then this is a different. It seems to be. So, so Israel and Judah seem to be able to produce a much larger military force than Saul has under his command here. And of course, it's about to get very much worse. We'll, we'll see some of the reasons for that a little further down in the chapter, right? Where you know, essentially um, Saul and Jonathan are the only ones who can afford weapons. So everybody else, it's like the, the Russian army on the Western Front, right? They've got... They're farming implements, and that's what they're, they're fighting the war with, is pitchforks and hoes and shovels and clubs. So what was Saul doing with this 2,000 men? Was he sitting on his keister? Well, that's a big question. Jonathan, and we'll see this again in chapter 14, Jonathan is an instigator. Jonathan is a go-getter. Jonathan can be relied on. Jonathan shows initiative. Jonathan is the kind of figure we would hope would rise to the office of king. And that becomes important as this chapter unfolds because we get the rejection of Saul's dynasty before we find out that Jonathan is Saul's son. So if we're reading this for the first time or we're suppressing what we know, we get all the way to this conversation between Samuel and Saul Right where he says, the verse thirteen, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Verse fourteen, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after His own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over His people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And we're like, oh, there's one right here, and he's successful, and he has power and strength and strategy and. And he's Saul's son. Oh, one who is waiting in the wings, who has shown himself so much more capable than his father, is denied the opportunity to ever serve in that office because of his father's sin. And notice how the narrator delays that to kind of both build and then frustrate this expectation around Jonathan. It's going to get worse as we move into the next chapter. And Jonathan shows once again what could have been, what we could have seen from a Saulite dynasty. Jonathan is, a, is a, an interesting exploration in what if, or should haves and could haves. Uh, with, with Saul offering the burnt offering, which was uh, the duty of the priest, was it not? Yes. And that was his big sin. So there are layers. Pardon? There, are, there are several layers to Saul's sin. Yeah. Yes. So the offering of an offering properly belongs to the office of a priest. And in case Saul was unclear on that, um, Samuel gave him a direct command. When you come to Gilgal, right, Wait seven days. I will come and give an offering and then provide further instructions. If we look back at chapter 10, I think it's around verse 8. Yeah, chapter 10, verse 8. He said, then go down before me to Gilgal 
and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings, which Saul asks for both of those things to be brought, by the way. Very deliberately picks up on two different kinds of offerings that are mentioned here. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So the specific wording in Samuel's instructions even precludes the possibility that one of the priests could have come alongside Saul and done this at Saul's command. Because Samuel's instructions are very specific, right? Go to Gilgal, wait. I will offer two different kinds of sacrifices and then tell you what to do. And what does Saul do? He goes to Gilgal, eventually, right? Um, He does wait, but in the face of a test, right? Threatened by the presence of the Philistines, seeing the people fleeing, instead of, the people are trembling, instead of obeying the command of the Lord by the mouth of his prophet Samuel, he says, I'm going to fix it. And the people probably thought of that as an initiative. Possibly. You know, we look at Jonathan and it's easy to see the initiative there. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that the whole ball gets started by Jonathan. It leaves us wondering, would Saul ever have found his way to Gilgal if it were not for the initiative of his son, right? The Lord uses other people to prod Saul into doing what he should do, which then provides the terms for the test of his obedience. Will he do what the Lord commanded or not? It seems like after he... He gives the offerings, and Samuel comes and rebukes him, and then the text goes on to describe various things. It seems like we're almost in this slow motion, and there's not this pressing, like this pressing urgency that he felt doesn't seem to actually materialize. Like there's... We'll see. There's something going on with the geography at the end of the chapter. Um, well, you know, too, if, if, I'm, if I'm sitting around among the trembling crowds, and I hear 30,000 chariots rumbling at the distance. That's, that's something to urge you to pick up the pace in your own thinking. There's something about this scene, especially as you look at the buildup from chapter 5 and following, that's, that's comical if you're paying attention. Um, it's like the buildup of manpower and firepower and material in the Vietnam War. Because the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese were watching the U.S. pour machines and people into South Vietnam. But our generals were equipped for and expected open warfare. And most of our equipment and our tactics and our training were not prepared for small-scale engagements in dense jungle where you have a visibility of maybe 10 yards. So that the, the way, or part of the way that war had to be waged was by destroying the jungle so you could see the enemy. And the, the buildup of the Philistines here is visually impressive and it's terrifying. And our, our buildup had that effect on both the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. But it's also incredibly impractical. 
because this is in the hill country. And we're talking about iron chariots, right? Iron chariots to chase Israelites into their holes on logging trail roads at best. More like sheep tracks, right? This is not the equipment you would use to wage war in the place where you would meet the Israelites. But the psychological effect on the Israelites of seeing the people and the equipment and all of that is that any place they could find to hide, they put themselves in, right? Like if you've tried to find animals out in the pasture or around the barn after a violent thunderstorm, right? And you have um, animals that are this big and they've found like a place where they can stick their head where they can't see and they'll do it and they think that they're hidden, right? And the, the picture of the Israelites hiding is almost like that, right? Any, not any place you would think of to hide, but any dark corner you pass, things you would never think of going into otherwise, right? They were hiding themselves in the pantry. They were hiding themselves in the root cellar. They were hiding themselves in the culvert under the road. Never mind the water was rising. They were opening tombs and hiding in there, trying not to be spotted by the Philistines because they're terrified. The psychological effect of all of that buildup. And there's, there's a lot of people, right? It's not just chariots that can't actually fight on this terrain. It's a lot of people and a lot of horses as well. So... So all of this buildup, all of that effect on the people, and what's Saul doing? What's Saul doing? He does go to Gilgal with a trembling group of people, even though some of the Hebrews, right, they're fleeing to the other side of Jordan, right? So the Philistines are coming from the west, and so several of the Israelites are fleeing. They're crossing the river on the east side, running to get away from them. How, how is it that we're down to 600 men? So we're not yet, but we will be. Yes. Uh, so at this point, it appears, we, we don't know how quickly between the beginning of the chapter and about two-thirds of the way through the chapter, we don't know how quickly Saul is losing men. But at the beginning of the chapter, there's, there are three thousands. But once we get down after his confrontation or conversation with Samuel, we get to verse Excuse me, we get to verse 15, and we're down to 600. So? Verse 8, um, the people were scattering, suggested it's a process. And yeah. So little by little, as people got scared, they, uh, they ran for it. Yeah. But in the meantime, he's tried to muster something like what we saw a couple of chapters earlier. Because we have the 3,000. And then Saul sounds the trumpet, rather less effective than cutting up his ox and sending its pieces around, right? He sounds the horn and tries to muster an army, and instead he's just bleeding people. Mine says deserting. Yes. Yeah. You know, deserting a ship. Yep. So yours says deserting as opposed to scattering? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just, it just makes Saul look like such a horrible leader. That nobody wants to stick with him. They're all scared. I mean, there's like no reassurance, nothing to regather his troops. It's like, oh well, I'll just do a burnt offering. <laughs> They're out of here. <laughs> They're running for the hills and the holes. <laughs> yeah. Would there not be any penalties for desertion? Like historic, that's not a new thing. 
Who would enforce it, though? Well, Saul's king. Yeah. Right? He's supposed but to be I mean, the enforcers have deserved to. But this is... impotent. It seems very impotent. Yeah. Yeah. This is a key point, both of these things. Would there have been a penalty for desertion? Almost certainly. Who's going to enforce it? Well, so far, Saul has not demonstrated himself to be a very capable or inspiring leader in the face of opposition from the people of Israel. And that, combined with this scene, causes us, I think, to reread some of those earlier instances and ask, okay, is this clemency and patience or is it hesitancy and impotence? Is it an inability to enforce the law and administer justice that we're actually seeing on those earlier occasions? It also, as commented, right, it, it shows us what kind of an inspiring leader Saul is in this moment, uh, that the people are running away. If they're winning, they're all happy. But when they start uh, on the path of not knowing, then they um, deserve it. <laughs> yep. Or to. Yes. And the fleeing and deserting, right? Our, our translations are, they're reading the same words. And this is the word for flee or scatter or run away. But this is a, a military context, right? Where an army has been raised. And in that kind of situation, the term we would normally apply is, is desertion. And so your translation has chosen to highlight that as a feature of what's going on. So... Okay, let's look at where Samuel shows up. Because things look really bad. Things look really bad, right? Because some of the things we expect are finally happening. So maybe after chapter 12, where Saul seems to be fighting the wrong people, but he does deliver a town that needed it and demonstrates his ability as a military leader, and then they renew the kingship. Well, Maybe, despite the weird ways it comes about, maybe this is the defining moment where the last piece of Samuel's instructions falls into place and Saul, as the leader God has chosen and not just the people have asked for, is vindicated and held up as the deliverer, right? But there's this, right? Um, verse 8, let's pick up at verse 8. He waited seven days the time appointed by Samuel. So clearly Samuel's words are in the mind of at least Saul, if not the people around him as well. He waited the seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. It's not clear whether we're at the end of the seventh day, or seven days have come and gone, and we're now on like day eight or after. That's not clear. The way it's phrased could be read either way. In English, in Greek, in Hebrew, it doesn't matter. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. Remember, Samuel had named two different kinds of offering. So Saul is still thinking in terms of Samuel's command by asking for both of these things, even though he knows in asking for them, he's also violating the instructions that Samuel gave. And he offered the burnt offering. What he does with the peace offering is done up. That's not mentioned, right? It says, verse 10, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. It's like he's waiting on the other side of the hill. You know, as soon as he smells the barbecue, like 
hey, you got some left for me? Now, it's very easy to read what's next in a negative light, but I don't think it's there quite yet. I mean, Saul violated the instructions. That's clear. I don't think Samuel knows that yet. All right. So as soon as he had finished, verse 10, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? You can read that with several different tones of voice, right? And I don't think his tone of voice here is, what have you done? I think we do get that in chapter 15. And in chapter 15, before he comes to confront Saul, the Lord tells him what Saul has done. And so in that scene, Samuel shows up. Saul tells him that he followed all of his instructions to the letter. And the first thing out of Samuel's mouth is, what then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears, right? There's a different tone from the very beginning with that conversation. Here, I think this is just a straight up honest question from Samuel. Like I've got here, looks like we're ready to go. What have you done? Well, I would love to see a study of all of the excuses offered in the Bible. Reminds me of Adam and the Garden of Eden. Yes. That woman made me do it. Because look at what he says. Yeah. Because in Genesis 3, right, when the Lord comes to Adam and so I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? And he says, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate, right? And I ate is the, the, the first thing God asks. It's the last thing he says in his answer. And Saul here, I think you're right. Right? Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I've not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself <laughs> and offered the burnt offering. It sounds a lot like Aaron saying, well, I threw in the gold and now pop this calf. <laughs> Aaron sounds so much like a two or three year old explaining things when you get home and the house is a mess. But Tony, look, going back to what have you done and the tone there, but Samuel would have seen that everybody was scattering and then Saul would not have been so compelled to make this crazy if, if he had just said, you know, what's up? <laughs> to me, it sounds like he did say, what have you done? It could must be. have done, done wrong to make that much of an excuse. So Saul clearly has a wounded conscience in his answer to Samuel. And notice also that from the outset, his attitude is not an attitude of repentance. He does not recognize and confess his sin and ask for forgiveness. Watch Saul's character on this point as we keep reading. This will become a distinguishing feature between Saul and David. Saul is confronted with his sin, he hardens. When David is confronted with his sin, he repents. And that's going to become a key difference, especially as we keep reading. And at points we're going to ask, you know, was Saul really that bad compared to what is happening with David here? 
I think we'll ask that at several points if we keep going, especially into 2 Samuel. But there's a key difference between these two men is that when Saul is confronted with his sin, he hardens. And when David is confronted with his sin, he repents. So. You know what gets me in problem? I, mean, I just see that there's a similarity between Saul and David in this, in the fact that they both had leisure times. I mean, he had seven days where he's just kind of sitting there, you know, leisure. And then David had some leisure time. He wasn't leading the army, and he got in trouble. It's just the reactions were different. Yeah. Yeah. But I think leisure time will get you into trouble. <laughs> You're probably right. I'm fascinated too. I'm, if I'm remembering right, Samuel came like within an hour after, I mean, a very short period of time after the sacrifices were made, the ceremonies were made. Yeah. Yeah, the implication from the wording is like you come back from a commercial break and you see Saul washing his hands and Samuel walks in the door, right? Um, or maybe he's just finished loading the dishwasher from dinner, right? And then there's Samuel. Like, hey, what are you done? So there's, there are a couple of matters of wording that I, I think our translations may pick up on and do different things with that I think are very revealing. Um, one of those, well, they, they both come in verse 12. So the ESV has, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself. Uh, those two phrases, not sought the favor and forced myself, what different ways do we have those rendered? So I felt compelled to offer the work. Okay, felt compelled instead of forced myself? I've got forced myself. Okay, what about sought the favor? Ask the favor. Ask the favor. Ask the favor. The word that's used here can absolutely be used for seeking the favor of the Lord, but it's not the normal way of expressing that. And it can also mean to appease or supplicate or, or satisfy someone's anger or offer a bribe to someone. And so Saul's manner of phrasing is ambiguous and can be read positively, which is, of course, how he wants it to be heard, but can also be understood in terms of he thinks that the Lord is someone to be manipulated into doing what Saul wants from him. So that in the way he phrases this and in the way he acts, Saul's not treating the ark like a rabbit's foot, but he seems to be viewing his relationship with the Lord in similar terms. That he's got to tick the right boxes. He's got to do the right things, right? If he wants his army to be able to defeat the Philistines, he's got to make sure he's had a quiet time every day this week. And he's read, you know, 20 chapters in his Bible reading plan, right? And he's prayed for 15 minutes a day. And he's shared the gospel with seven different people, right? And he's been to church twice on Sunday. And, and so he seems to be viewing the Lord in that way, right? That this is a system of sacrifice that allows me to manipulate the outcome. So that I seeking God's will as much as he's seeking to affirm his will or his purposes. Using God. We know he's not seeking God's will 
Because if he was seeking God's will, he would have obeyed God's command. And there's a similar ambiguity in the phrasing, so I forced myself, right? This could be understood as I forced myself, right? Or I felt compelled, like I didn't have any other choice. Or I restrained myself, like I definitely would not ordinarily have done this, right? But the Lord put me in a place where I didn't have another choice. And so I did what was before me, right? The Lord set me in front of this door, and by golly, I opened it. Because that's where I found myself, right? And so he's doing these several things in, in making his excuses, pointing to all these other circumstances, and then pointing to these things he's done, right? And trying to read the book of Providence as necessitating his actions. All of these things that he's doing and saying and the way he's choosing to describe things to excuse his clear disobedience on what would seem to be a very trivial matter. I'm sure none of us can think of people who do that. Yeah, I'm so glad we're not like Saul, right? Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that man. I force myself to go to church because I want to get to the end of heaven. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's why I'm here for Bible studies. <laughs> this is one of those places where I think, I, on the one hand, it's, it's easy to try and paint ourselves into the story. Like there's no difference between us and the characters. There's no difference in culture. There's no difference in circumstances. But there's also a way of focusing on the differences and the distance that paints ourselves out of the story, right? That puts us um, out from under what the text demands of us. Um, Saul would probably be pretty good at that, actually, if he was reading this story about someone else. Uh, And we do this, don't we, right? We'll read our circumstances rather than reading God's word right? We will look everywhere except in scripture to try and determine what it is that we should do. I remember hearing the beginning of a talk about biblical decision making where somebody was praying and they looked up and the time on the clock was 7.37. And they said, well, that means that I'm supposed to get on a plane and go be a missionary. And the person giving the talk said it would have been a lot more impressive if the clock had said 777 or DC 10 for that matter. Um, but we, we do that sort of thing, right? Um, there's another uh, joke that's made about this that, you know, I want to hear from God. Well, read your Bible. No, I want to hear from him out loud. Well, then read your Bible out loud, right? Um, right? We have God's word. We have his commands. He's given us the scriptures. And we look everywhere else for what he's telling us instead, right? Should I marry this person? Well, they're a raging heathen and they don't love Jesus and they're trying to lead you away from church, but they're so sweet and God brought them into my life and we get along so well together and my mom just loves him. Well, how are you going to make that decision in a godly way? By ignoring God's word as he's given it to you? And that's what Saul does here. And again, right, thank the Lord that none of us are are like that at all. Samuel's reply is much more terse in Hebrew than it is in English. This 
you have done foolishly. That sounds grand and lofty and loquacious. It's a single word in Hebrew, right? And then he'll expand on that. But there's, there's some punch to that phrasing. Um, it's like shaking his head and saying, idiot. You have not kept. And, and Saul, right? Samuel just lays it on him. He's very blunt. He's very clear. There's been some tension between Samuel and this whole idea of kingship. But Samuel is out of the picture, as it were. And he's just the mouthpiece. And his personality doesn't enter into this. He says, you've done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. What did Israel want in a king that was different than what they had in a judge? Where do we see Eli's failure most prominently? With his sons. With his sons. What happens in Samuel's ministry that stirs up the renewed demand for a king? The corruption of the sons and the judges, judges yeah. that they made in their positions. Corruption of his sons, right? The difference, the primary difference between the role of a king and the role of a judge is that with a king, we get continuity. We get continuity of leadership because we have the establishment of a dynasty as rule will pass from father to son. What's rejected here, right? Our, the heading that often stands over this chapter is not altogether helpful because it calls it the rejection of Saul. But what's specifically rejected in verse 13 and 14 is the continuity of Saul's kingdom, right? The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. That's not talking about Saul personally. That's talking about his house, right? A Saulide dynasty is taken off the table in this moment because of Saul's actions. You're not going to obey the command of the Lord, no matter how trivial it seems. That's it. No dynasty. Your house will not continue. Your kingdom will not be established. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Was there other people? Yes. I mean, I, it doesn't say, I know, but I mean, I'm just wondering if he's it's a public review. We know that there are people with him when Samuel comes. Although it looks like most of them have their attention on the hills. They're thinking about where they can go and hide. So whether they were privy to this conversation at this moment or not is not made clear. So perhaps this is a largely or mostly private conversation. Maybe it happens in front of his men. Don't know for sure. We know Samuel leaves and everybody sees him leave and not stay. I'm wondering if it was not so public how this reached a point of being conveyed to Scripture. Obviously Somebody the Lord. knew about it. Yeah. Obviously the Lord knew. And presumably others knew as well. I'm sure Jonathan would have come to know. So talk about undermining an already challenged authority. 
Yes, and that will come up more directly in chapter 15 uh, as Saul is personally rejected uh, and Saul pleads with Samuel not to intercede for him and pray for him and reconcile him to the Lord, but to help him save face in front of the arm. But we'll get to that in chapter 15. So this is important as we're, as we're reading, right? Saul has come to power in stages. And there have been several bumps along the way. His rejection likewise happens in stages with all kinds of bumps. This chapter is a rejection of his dynasty. Chapter 15 will be a rejection of Saul personally. That won't come into effect until much later. And so several people have read the narrative of Saul in Samuel and said, well, it's just hopelessly confused, right? He's made king at least twice, if not three times. He's rejected from being king two different times. And then he continues being king. So obviously there are these um, irreconcilable versions of what happened with Saul that someone's just put down on paper with scotch tape and a Xerox machine and they just left it a mess. And I think a closer reading, like we're attempting here, shows that actually there's, there's a lot of complication and it's purposeful and artful and tells us something. Uh, right, the establishment of a monarchy in a society that's only known judges doesn't happen overnight. There are these stages he goes through where he has to be anointed and then recognized and then demonstrate himself as capable publicly. And then likewise, his rejection, it's not initially a wholesale rejection of his person so that he, his rule ends. It's a rejection of his dynasty and then a rejection of him, and then a long period where he tries to hold on to the trappings of office without God's blessing over it. So at this moment, in verse 14, again, we know because we've read this before, but if we're hearing this for the first time, we don't know that Jonathan is Saul's son yet. So, hey, there's this guy. He was just mentioned right? He's successful. He shows initiative. He doesn't have this long history of trouble with Samuel and disobeying the Lord. Maybe this is a hopeful moment for Israel, right? Saul's gone down the toilet, but we've got this other guy right behind. Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. Some of your translations will say Samuel arose and went up to, from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. Uh, The Septuagint has a longer reading. It says Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. So what's going on there is is in Hebrew, that phrase in between about the rest of the people is is missing. It's, It's not there, right? So that that verse only speaks about Samuel. That leaves us with questions, right? doesn't fit with the rest of the passage. It appears to be the case that in the copying of the Hebrew text, right, someone's eyes skipped from Gilgal to Gilgal, and they managed to leave out that phrase about the rest of the people, which is why the ESV chose to include that longer description. So Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to we don't know where, and the rest of the people 
go with Saul from Gilgal back to Gibeah of Benjamin. Another thing that's happening in the chapter is we hear about Geba and we hear about Gibeah. And this may be just two different names, two very closely related names for the same place. Not sure. So Samuel has gone away and Saul numbered the people who were present with him. And he's got three thousands plus everybody else who came and answered the call, right? Minus, minus everybody who ran away <laughs> and found their hidey holes, right? Talk about chicken math and goat math, and then there's Israelite army math. A lot more minuses than chicken math. Um, so he's got 600 people. What do the Philistines have? 3,000. Is that right? 30,000 chariots. 30,000 30, chariots. Think tanks, right? They've got 30,000 tanks. Soldiers, 6, as numerous horsemen. as the same. 6,000 horsemen. So think maybe helicopters, right? right? People, people like the sand on the seashore. If you've been in a football stadium on game day, not a high school stadium, but like an NCAA Division I stadium. You look around at that crowd. I don't know about LSU. When I was at OU, they renovated the stadium so it could hold 80,000 people. And I've also, when we were talking about this earlier, I went to the 1997 National Boy Scout Jamboree. I was in the middle of a field where we had about 30,000 Boy Scouts, right? If you're in the middle there, you look to the right, and I mean, it was pretty flat. It was Fort AP Hill, Virginia. Way over there, you could see the tree line. And way over there, you can't see the tree line. It's just all people. And in front and behind, too. And this is even more, right? Just innumerable people armed, prepared for war, right? And they probably all have swords and spears and shields. And the Israelites, they, they don't have anything, right? So they've got 600 people. Right? This doesn't look good. This doesn't look good. Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. So they're over here. Philistines are over there. Close, like within sight of one another. What happens in verse 17? Raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. Right? These could be relatively tiny detachments in terms of the Philistines' whole mass and still significantly outnumber, like by orders of magnitude, the number of people that Saul and Jonathan have with them. And they go these different directions. They don't mean very much to us. Uh, but to put it this way, one goes north, one goes south, one goes east or west. I don't remember which. Saul and Jonathan are surrounded. So these guys are probably going out and raiding crops and villages and things like that, but they're also encircling Saul and Jonathan. And then we get the details about the weapons that we've alluded to several times, right? Verse 19, now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. Most of that doesn't mean very much to us. Israel 
have sovereignty at that time? Or, I mean, it sort of sounds like the Philistines are calling the shots. Philistines are so absolutely calling the shots. Um, so the Philistines may or may not have been in charge of Israelite territory politically at this time. The Philistines are more technologically advanced than the Israelites. They enter the Iron Age in terms of their technology and what they use and their implements long before the Israelites. The Israelites are still in the Bronze Age at this time. But it seems to be more than just the Philistines have blacksmiths and Look at the poor Israelites still running around with bronze. They're actually preventing the Israelites from developing or having access to any metalworking of their own. If you all remember Braveheart, right? Uh, there's a moment in the movie where the English have made sure that there are no weapons of war to be found among the Scots. And when the Scottish lords decide that they're going to rise up and do something about it, of course, it didn't work well the first time. They're pulling right, the, the lords of the Scots because the people don't have the means. The lords of the Scots are pulling swords out of the, the roof thatching where they've hidden them away. Because the English, although they've not been able to directly control the territory of the Scots. They've been able to ensure that they don't have weapons. So sword control? Sword control, yeah. <laughs> the Philistines have effectively ensured this, right? Imagine if in order to sharpen your mower blades, you had to drive all the way down to Baton Rouge and it would cost you about 100 bucks to get it done. That's the kind of situation here. You went to your enemy to do it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, not to comment too much about Baton Rouge in that regard. <laughs> but, but yes, yeah. Why did Jonathan attack the garrison of the Philistines in the first place? Didn't he know all this? And he was just going to tick them off by doing that. Looks like it's his fault that all this is going on. <laughs> I love that. That's one thing that Saul doesn't do is blame Jonathan. Uh, but the reason for that may be because he's trying to steal the credit. Um, we'll get a closer view of Jonathan in the next chapter. We'll see some of what motivates him and his decision making. That's a good question, right? Jonathan knew all this. Jonathan knew that he commands a unit that, you know, He's the only sword bearer among them, right? The rest have staves and slings and clubs and rocks. And, and yet they were able to attack and have victory over the Philistine garrison. Maybe it's in terms of sheer numbers or the element of surprise. But that leads to the Philistines were either in or occupying or indeed controlling what was the promised land. And the Philistines were okay with the Israelites as long as they stayed in their little spot. Mm -hmm. But when they challenged what they believed spiritually and physically was theirs, it was not okay. And of course, the application is that, you know, we're, we as Christians, we're all okay until we say, we don't believe that. And this is what we believe. And the culture doesn't always like that. 
So the war begins, and we take the gear. Yeah, I imagine once they raid the garrison, then they, they probably raid the armory while they're at it. And suddenly there are a, a few more swords, even though that doesn't alter the overall picture that we get in, in verse 22, right? Now, verse 22 is probably not an absolute statement in light of their earlier attacking the Philistine garrison that there were only two swords and two spears among the entire army. But they're so poorly outfitted that it's not exactly an overstatement to say that either. There's one more very terrifying note at the end of the chapter. Aside from how poorly they're armed, it says in verse 23, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So if we're tracking the geography, three raiding parties were sent out to three different directions of the compass to encircle Saul and Jonathan and the 600 men with him. And now the Philistines who are still there come out in a frontal assault. So they're now completely enveloped by attacking Philistine forces at a moment when Saul's dynasty has just been rejected. It's a great place for one of those to be continued, right? Is it curtains for Israel at this moment? Because it sure looks like it. Sure looks like it. All right. Yeah, 600 against like the sand on the seashore. All right. Quick reminder that we're off the next two weeks. We'll be back June 27th. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for seeing us safely here. We pray you'd see us safely home this evening. Thank you for the way scripture acts as a two-edged sword. We can't help but see ourselves and our own tendencies as we see the way the text critiques Saul, his actions and his heart. Lord, may you call us to repentance as we see our sin and the sin of these characters. May we model, especially for our children, a different response than we see in the life of Saul. A response not of hardening, but of repentance. We pray that in that moment of repentance, in that act of repentance, you would extend to us an assurance of pardon. That you would relate to us not in Adam, but in Christ. And we ask these things in his precious name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.